Oh, they don't make them like that anymore. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Summer Nights, of course, one of the tracks from Greece. Oh, Happy Days from the 70s. I remember going to see that film. I guess you didn't go and see it the first time round, did you, Daniel? Well, I wouldn't have been alive when it first came out, and uh, I'm glad because I was kind of... Uh, I watched it a couple of times when I was a teenager and couldn't stand it. Although I'm surprised how much kind of edgy stuff there is in it having seen it again recently ah well you see it was a good it was a good film i, I loved it, it was it i was... actually prefer the sequel but that's only because i'm a michelle pfeiffer fan <laughs> good clean good clean fun i think it was well, anyway uh people might gather from the uh, the phone sounds that you're not actually here in the studio today no i'm in uh, the heart of north yorkshire in a place called burley and wharfdale where i'm uh, staying with a friend of mine doing a bit of drumming Right. Hence why I can't be in the studio that this morning. That sounds good. But we're going to be doing all the usual things, just o- over the phone. You're not going so. to get rid of me that easily, Richard. Yeah, so the, the cult film this week, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes' time, is uh, The Wall from... Yeah, uh, the Wall. ...1982. Gosh, doesn't it make you feel old? And then we'll be having a look, of course, at some new releases. And uh, what we've got this week, Fair Game, Hall Pass, yeah, The Resident. Yeah, Fair Game, Hall Pass, um, Company Men, The Resident, and there's one other which we'll get through if we have time right um, battle of andalusia so we'll crack on with the uh, the top 10 shall we daniel and um some new entries this week uh which uh, one or two of which i've never heard of so no doubt you will uh, elucidate but uh, we'll start at the bottom end number 10 down from six the week before i guess on its way out it's yogi bear yeah and i'm glad it's on its way out i mean i, I don't mind the original hanna barbera cartoons but this is a rather sort of ham-fisted adaptation of them and i think that you no know, Dan Aykroyd is a really frustrating screen presence because for every good film he makes, there's at least 15 that are really unwatchable. Have you ever seen a film called um, Nothing But Trouble? Uh, no, I didn't see uh, that. It's a kind of Beetlejuice rip-off from the early 90s in right. which he has to wear a load of prosthetics and it's got Demi Moore in. Uh, but that's an example of, uh, no, some of him. He hasn't made very good choices in general and this is another example of that. Right. At number nine, making its way very slowly up the charts, uh, West is West, and I guess a sort of follow-up to East is East, is it? Yeah, it's the long-awaited sequel to it. Um, Both of them are directed by Andy Diamini, who is most famous as a television director. It isn't as good as East is East, and it is riddled with clichés, but if you're a fan of the original, it's probably fine. Right, one or two uh, Oscars, I think, wasn't there for True Grit, if I remember? Um, So, doing very well at number eight. Because it won for cinematography, but otherwise I think it was more or less snub to be honest and the, you know, the way that uh, the Oscars responded to King's speech it's not entirely surprising like I say I like it I don't think it's the Cohen's great work I think it's a bit sort of semi-skimmed in the way that their quirkiness marries to the source novel but Matt Damon's great and so is Hayley Steinfeld so check it out if you haven't already that sounds good right at number seven uh, is I am number four which isn't uh, really any good. I mean, it's it's another very derivative kind of teen sci-fi film. It rips off, you know, John Carpenter's Starman, The Twilight Saga. I mean, DJ Caruso, who directed it, is the guy who made uh, Disturbia, which was uh, the rip-off of Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. And by the way that it's slipping down the top ten so quickly, because it was number three last week, if I, my memory serves me correctly. That's right, yes. It's, it's clearly not hitting its core demographic in the way that was intended. And the reason is it's a bit sort of derivative and a bit cynical in the way that it's being sold. Right. Uh, Number one on its uh, way down, but it's been number one for a while, hasn't it? Uh, Daniel is Nomeo and Juliet. Well, it's it's not Tangled. That's the problem with this. I mean, I dare say Tangled is still showing in a few places if you haven't seen it already. And I don't have any kind of ill will towards Nomeo and Juliet. It's a sort of innocuous, slightly ropey animation, and it didn't need to be in 3D. But if there's nothing else around, I'm sure it's... 
it'll while away the time fine. Just don't expect a masterpiece. Right. At number five, I finally got it a week and a half ago when it was in Anik. Brilliant film. I, I think it worked. It was des deserved every Oscar it got and every BAFTA it got. The King's Speech. Brilliant film. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I think it's very good. I wouldn't say uh, it's a brilliant because there's another Playhouse screening tonight, isn't there? I think there is. Yes. Right. So that's it. That'll be your last chance if you live it. I was going to actually say because it's it's been around for ages and there isn't there is currently no getting rid of it. Would you like to make me a bet as to how long it's going to stay in the top ten? Because I suspect it'll still be around at the end of March. I suspect you're right. I think lots of people want to go and see it. It was interesting, the, the audience at the Anik Playhouse, um, you know, sort of a whole uh, range of ages and um, people who don't normally go to the Playhouse to see films. So it definitely attracted people in from far and wide. And, uh, and you couldn't hear a pin drop the whole way through the film. It was uh, one of those ones that just kept your attention. That's really uh, good. I mean, like I say, I don't have any problem at all with the huge amount of success it's getting, whether critically or commercial. I think it's a very good film. Not a masterpiece, but very, very good. So if we're doing this bet, um, do you want to, like, pick a week when you think it'll be no longer be there, or should we decide that at the end of the show? Uh, let's go for that at the end of the show, shall we? <laughs> I shall have a ponder on that one. All right. Okay, uh, number four is um, an alien story. Yeah, it's Paul, and it's not the full-on... Simon Pegg, Nick Frost experience that I wanted it to be. It does look like it's had all the sort of interesting geeky edges taken off to appeal to a mainstream audience, but hopefully if people are still going to see it, then some of that money will find its way into the coffers of Edgar Wright and they can uh, go back and make another film together. Right, the first of our uh, new entries this week. I have uh, seen some previews of this one. It looked very interesting. Unknown. Now, have you seen the trailer for this? Yes, I did, yes. Because if you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film. It's, <laughs> right. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, the way that marketing works nowadays. Liam Neeson's having a very interesting point in his career because he's, he's nearly 60, but he's having some kind of late-period renaissance as a hard man action hero. And as far as I'm aware, he does most of his own stunts, which is quite impressive. Um, in terms of the plot, however, it's a bit plodding. It's a sort of... There are similarities, in a way, with things like Changeling or The Lady Vanishes, which is a very good early-period Hitchcock film from the 30s. Um, the only remarkable thing about it, from my point of view, is there is a supporting performance by Bruno Ganz, who is most famous for playing Hitler in um, Downfall, or the Underdang, as it's known. So there's a sort of interesting, charming idea that he's gone from playing Hitler to an ex-Stasi agent. You know, that's what happened at the end of the war. He's also in Wings of Desire, if you haven't checked that out. He plays one of the angels, so if you haven't seen that film, that's, that is one you really have to see. It's a great Vin Vendor's work. Great. Um, Liam Neeson was on um, Graham Norton last night. Very nice to watch him as well, I've got to say. But Yeah, um, I mean, he seems a lovely guy. I mean, I, I don't think... I mean, he's done a lot of interesting work. I'm not the biggest fan of Schindler's List, but he is a good actor. Right. At uh, number two, it's Matt Damon's latest... Um, I guess uh, a little bit of the uh, the Bourne genre, isn't it? Uh, the Adjustment Bureau? Yeah, I mean, it, it was billed by one of the posters as Bourne meets Inception, which it isn't. But it's good, silly fun. I mean, it's quite close to the work of um, Richard Kelly, who's the guy who made Donnie Darko. It's, it's like I say, a rather sort of contrived um, plot based loosely on a novel by Philip K. Dick, who, you know, who's work inspired Blade Runner and Total Recall and so forth. It's carried by the relationship between Matt Damon and Emily Blum, which is believable and charming. And I'll watch anything with Terence Stamp in. Incidentally, 
if you are a Superman fan, go and get the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 on DVD, where basically Richard Donner went back and took out all the sort of camp nonsense that Richard Lester put in when he took over that film. And very good performance from Terence Stamp and what is still the defining Zod. And if they put Zod in the Man of Steel film that's coming out next year, they're going to really struggle to get a better performance. So when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago, we were saying how much we uh, both liked the, uh, the Bourne trilogy. Do you think yeah. this one compares? Well, it's a lot sillier and lighter than the Bourne series, and we'll, we'll come on to the Bourne again when we talk about Fair Game, because there's you know, the Doug Neiman collection. I think, like I say, it's, it's not, I don't know, a, a top-level Philip K. Dick adaptation, and it isn't you know, a great political thriller in the way that, for instance, the Bourne Ultimatum is, because I still think that is just a film that hits every single note constantly. But, you know, it's good, frothy, silly fun, and I don't have a problem with it. Great, good. Now, number one, I haven't heard of. But you said you have, so yeah, tell Rango, me about which, it. Which, now, this is a bit of a problem for me. On the one hand, I'm very glad that an animation uh, has managed to kind of take so much money, you know, go straight to number one in the box office without being in 3D. And I sort of like all the films that it owes a debt to, because it's essentially a sort of pastiche western with Johnny Depp parodying the character he played in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the central plot about uh, water shortages kind of lifted from Chinatown, and we'll talk again about Polanski a little bit later on. The problem is that it's directed by Gore Verbinski, who is a complete hack. He is most famous for, ma for helming the Pirates of the Caribbean series, of which the fourth one is in the works, although he's not involved with it. He also made that abysmal remake of The Ring, the Japanese horror film with um, Naomi Watts in. And my problem is it is that as much as I'm sure that Rango might be sort of decent and fun on its own terms, if people kind of pay to see it, it might sort of be taken as a carte blanche for him to release another sort of bloated, sprawling franchise and an already unsuspecting public. So the film itself is probably okay, but it's, you know, you have to be a little bit conscientious with your, with your film choices when you're around someone like Verbinski, who, if you let him off the leash, will just make horrible films. So mixed opinions on it, I would say. Yeah, like I say, I, I don't, it's a strange um, opinion because it's, I don't have any innate problem with the film taken on its own terms, but when you understand the circumstances about who made it, it, it becomes more sort of complicated. But like, like I say, it, the film itself is probably fine. So, I don't know. I'm not going to kind of condemn you if you go and see it, but just be wary about the people behind it. Okay, so assuming everybody's seen the, uh, the King's Speech, what else would you be recommending in the top ten? Well, if you haven't seen True Grit already, go and see that. Um, Otherwise, the Adjustment Bureau is probably the standout. Like I say, Rango's fine, but I won't be ju uh, jumping out to see it. So, yeah, those two, I'd say. Okay. Um, unknown is, is okay, but it's a bit sort of plodding and formulaic. Lionheart Radio. Now, for kids who grew up in the late 70s and early 80s with uh, Pink Floyd and Deep Purple and uh, Status Quo and all those great bands, uh, we will enjoy this week's cult film, won't we? Yeah, um, Pink Floyd The Wall, which is an adaptation of Pink Floyd's uh, 1979 double album. And I think you said you had a copy of it on vinyl. Yeah, I think I do, yes. 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 You managed to Many... find it in the attic and dust it off. <laughs> no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that's buried under piles of stuff as you always get in lofts, don't you? you know, it goes up there and never comes down again. Yeah, it's just, it's in many ways, that's a shame. So it's an adaptation of the album. The creation of this film is, is generally seen to be the reason that the band sort of broke up in the early 80s because you know, a, a kind of potted history of the lead up to this 
Following the success of their previous album called Animals, the band migrated to France to get around you know, British tax laws and avoid the kind of sh the sharp end of punk that was coming out. You had sort of John Lydon walking down the streets of Carnaby Street with T-shirts on saying, I hate Pink Floyd. So, you know, it was, there was still a sort of idea that they could get lynched in public. They spent a year writing this album, during which time Roger Waters effectively took control of the band, fell out with David Gilmour, the guitarist, and fired the keyboardist Rick Wright, you know, just saying that he was being uncooperative. Of course, the ironic thing is that the, the wall tour was so sort of ambitious and expensive that the only one who ever made any money on it was Rick Wright because he was hired back as a session musician and so he was you know, kind of paid in advance. So the film has a very sort of troubled and complicated production history. It was originally intended to be a concert film directed by Gerald Scarfe, combining the footage of the band from their U.S. tour with the animations that he'd done, you know, the, uh, like the flowers, the marching hammers, and those sort of famous images with it. As the filming went on, they were struggling to get the money. EMI said they wouldn't pick it up because you know, certain, they didn't understand the idea, which kind of shows what EMI know about filmmaking. Um, certain sections that they'd filmed of the concert tours weren't sort of captured properly. So in the end, Waters decided to kind of push Scarf to one side, saying, OK, you just do the animations and concentrate on the stage show, and brought in Alan Parker. Alan Parker's had a really interesting career. I mean, at, at that point, he'd done sort of three very different films because he'd made Bugsy Malone, which is, you know, the sort of the classic children's-friendly gangster film which helped with, along with Taxi Driver, helped to launch the career of uh, Jodie Foster. Then he made Midnight Express, which is um, a very sort of gritty prison film which many people see as the, the kind of long-term uh, forerunner of the Shawshank Redemption. And most recently before, he made the original version of Fame, which, um, you know, is quite sort of cheesy and you know, light-hearted, but is actually pretty kind of, it does have a little bit of substance in it. So he was brought in by Waters to make a dramatized version of the album. Waters was originally going to star in it, but after initial screen test, he was replaced by Bob Geldof, and we'll, we'll come on to uh, how he got the part a little bit later, because it's quite a funny story. So the plot, before we play a track from the album, it, it's, it's very difficult to summarize, but here's the basic idea. You have a young man called Pink who is very closely based on Waters. He's a rock star who has had a series of traumatic experiences in his childhood and early adult life. His uh, father was killed in action during World War II. His mother is incredibly overprotective. His schoolmasters are oppressive. You know, they beat him and pour out their derision on his work. There's a scene where um, they catch him writing poetry in class and read out the lyrics that turns out to be actually the lyrics of money in the film version. And his girlfriend sort of starts cheating on him because he's so sort of cold and distant and uninterested. Eventually, he decides that he's had enough and he builds a wall around himself both literally and metaphorically to basically keep everyone else out while maintaining his career as a rock star and he slowly but surely starts to go mad until he becomes convinced that he is a fascist dictator unleashing his armies upon the worms that make up his audience um to give you a flavor i've got a track from um the wall double album called waiting for the worms which i think captures both the tone of the album and the the sort of the pumped-up, psychotic tone of the film itself, if you'd like to play that now. Let's have a little listen, shall we? Quite a sudden end to that one, isn't it? That it was... Uh, down your spine, doesn't it? Yes, that was uh, Pink Floyd waiting for the worms from their album... Um, the Wall. The Wall, <laughs> which was the fourth highest-selling album of all time. And yeah. uh, 23 million sold in the US alone, it says mm. here which is impressive, especially considering how much Dark Side sold. Yes. So, 
to start the sort of the meat and drink of this, I should start by saying I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan, as I'm guessing you are. Yes. And yes. the wall kind of holds a very special significance of me because it's where my, uh, well, I say obsession, a very healthy obsession with the band started because I was given a copy of it for Christmas one year and I made the decision, rightly or wrongly, of listening to it starting at midnight the following day. And I couldn't sleep after it ended, partly because it was brilliant, but also because I was really freaked out by it. It was really scary at parts. And despite the fact that there's hardly any dialogue in the film, and despite Parker's pedigree when it comes to musicals, you know, Bugsy Malone and Fame, and later made things like The Commitments and Evita with Madonna, Pink Floyd is not so much a mu musical as, like, an art film. And it's certainly not a concert film in the way that it was originally intended. It isn't a kind of straightforward A to B adaptation which just goes through every track on the album, so much as a sort of emotional retuning of the central concepts and characters to fit around a very powerful and hypnotic series of images. I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with the, um, the films of Peter Greenaway, who made things like The Draftsman's Contract and The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, which are sort of designed much more around sort of art installations that just happen to be slightly cinematic. It's that sort of approach, although it does predate Peter Greenaway by a couple of years. The film opens with this long shot of a camera moving along a hotel corridor into Pink's trashed hotel room, and you see him sort of slumped in his chair with a cigarette burned right down to his knuckles and just this vacant expression at the, the archetypal burned-out rock star. So there is the implication that what we are seeing might be all taking place within Pink's head, or it might be playing out in real life. It doesn't come down on either side, and in the end, we have to make up our own minds. So as a viewing experience... It's just about as full-on as you can get. I mean, it's a 15 certificate, but it's as visually kind of striking and horrifically beautiful as any kind of horror film from the late 70s. I mean, there are connections with um, Suspiria, the Dario Argento film and its color scheme, and there is also a connection with Alien, and it's interesting that both, you know, Alan Parker and Ridley Scott came out of advertising, and they have the ability to take sort of color and imagery to evocatively convey so much by just showing so little. It's like you know, the wonderful images in Blade Runner that came out the, the, uh, the very same year as this, where it's just the, the tiniest little shift in shadow can say so much about a character. Because of the complicated production process of the film and the way in which you had Alan Parker, Roger Waters, and Gerald Scarf kind of all fighting with each other and always coming up with new ideas, you can't honestly say that the film hangs together as a coherent piece. I mean, there are little moments throughout which are sort of ropely put together, like the Run Like Hell sequence, which is the, uh, you have the crowd sort of marching in time, and it, it is very badly choreographed, like it was made up in five minutes, because that's probably how it happened, to be perfectly honest with you. There is also the central problem of the characterization of Pink, in that you have Bob Geldof playing the character on screen in physical form, but most of the songs are still being sung by Roger Waters, either re-recorded with altered lyrics in the case of Mother, or they're lifted straight from the double album, and it's a question of, well, whose story is this, and how are you telling it, and that sort of thing. The point is, however, if you sit there sort of questioning all the little things like the role of the, of the unreliable narrator, or whom are the audience identifying with, you will sort of come out having missed the point, and the film will seem a bit sort of pompous and over the top. The only way to properly experience Pink Floyd the Wall is the same way you'd sort of experience, I don't know, a David Lynch film or Apocalypse Now, in the sense that you'd sit there, say, show me what you've got and I won't ask questions, and you just let it wash over you, because it's, it's much less a tone in narrative cinema than a sort of emotional, tonal experience. I mean, you have to bear in mind, of course, that a lot of the wall is based 
almost directly on Roger, on Roger Waters' own life. It's about him venting his spleen about the world of uh, rock and about just life in general. So you'll either sit there saying, get alive, you have a privileged oath, or you will sort of identify with some, if not all, of his crimes. Now, I suppose you'd say about most films, but this must be really one that's uh, you've got to watch on a widescreen rather than uh, on a little television in the corner. Yeah, you, you, it is fantastic when it's projected. I have seen it on the big screen, and it's, you know, don't sit on the front row because you won't get through the first ten minutes. Um, so from a visual point of view, like I say, it's full on, but it's it, in terms of its sort of colour scheme, it is extraordinary. I mean, Parker is a great visual artist who knows how to manipulate colour. I mean, he's kind of... You start with all these sort of realistic shots of 1940s Britain in which everything's kind of khaki and pale blue and washed out to give the sense of, you know, a world that's sort of clinging on to the past. And then he intercuts that with sort of stark, haunting blacks and deep, really bloody reds of Pink's Nightmares. There's a, a famous um, bit in the first 15 minutes called the Thin Ice Sequence where Bob Geldof is floating on his back in a swing pool and the, the camera's kind of moving up and down his body as the swing pool slowly turns into from water into blood and he starts to drown and it's a really powerful image and the interesting thing i discovered when i was researching this is when they filmed it they discovered that bob Geldof actually couldn't swim so what they did was they borrowed the life cast of of christopher reeve that they used in the superman flying sequences just it's basically a fiberglass shell in the shape of christopher reeve's back they hung it just over the swimming pool so that it was touching the surface of the water and he could just lie on his back and sort of flail around a bit aimlessly and they made it look as if he was drowning. I think you love those stories. I think they're great, aren't they? What really went on behind the scenes, isn't yes, it? Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of others if, which we can touch on if we have time. Yeah, another thing I found out during my little bit of research, uh, apparently um, Bob Goldoff didn't originally want to do the part. He's yeah, I mean, we may as well come on to this now then, because he was... Like I say, it was originally going to be Waters, but he did the screen test, which didn't come out all that well, because basically Roger Waters, with the best will in the world, is not an actor. And um, Bob Gildas, who at the time, he was sort of at his peak in terms of what he was doing with the Boomtown Rats, and he, he got into a cab with the producer of the film who pitched it, saying, you know, we want you to be in this film, and he said, no, I can't do this, I can't stand Pink Floyd. The ironic thing is that the guy who was driving the taxi was Roger Waters' brother, so he was sort of press-ganged into it. Yeah. Um, but uh, as we'll, I mean, we may as well come on to his performance now. What did you think of it in terms of, do you think it was any good? <sighs> Such a long time ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it's one of those that you remember for the film and you remember the visuals. I'm not sure I especially remember the acting from it. Yeah, um, I mean, it was... Well, there wasn't it. a lot of dialogue, and um, it's um, it, it's one of those that's... Yeah, it's more about the impact that stays with you than perhaps, for me, having remembered it as a great piece of uh, dramatic film. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it, it is, in a way, an art film, like rather than you know, like an extended music video or anything like that. But I think that Bob Geldof, considering that he was working under very sort of complicated, troubled circumstances, does a pretty good job of conveying someone descending into madness to the point at which he has to shave his own eyebrows off, which must have got him a fair bit of stick when the film was you know, in the months after it was released when he still couldn't grow his hair back. In a way, though, despite the fact that um, Parker's, you know, visual style is really, really good and which does have a connection with Dario Argento in the sense of what is gruesome and horrific can also be incredibly beautiful. There was that quote from Eli Roth about uh, Argento saying he puts the gore in gorgeous, which is a great quote. The most visually striking elements in the film for me are the animations of Gerald Scarf. There, and there is something 
inherently psychotic about them. And the most famous image that he came up with is the Marching Hammers, which featured in the music video for Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which is where most people will be familiar with the wall. Oh, don't you remember that? Yes, yeah. that was an amazing uh, video, wasn't yeah. it? And I mean, as far as I'm aware, all the uh, the animations of that were lifted from the concert tour because it was kind of taking place around the same time. Um, but it, it's just a very... It's, it's something... It's, it's such a simple image of just a hammer with sort of Nazi regalia in terms of the combination of red and black, but it just works. It's such a brilliantly simple image of... No, this unthinking, oppressive, and unrelenting force. But you have also the the other images that he comes up with, like um, the two flowers, which intermingle, they morph into sort of sexual organs. The female devours the male, which is sort of an expression of Pink's sexual inadequacy. And then you have the whole of the Goodbye Blue Sky sequence, which starts with a dove being ripped open to reveal this black eagle. The eagle then turns into a German bomber, and then it finishes with this Union Jack on a pole collapsing and turning to a bleeding cross. I mean, it's just epic and harrowing imagery which sort of really cuts to the heart of the film about the futility of war about alienation about death and you know, madness and so forth so like i say when we were talking about bob geldof's performance it is much more than just a sort of series of music videos you know like there's an idea here and an idea here and an idea here but there's sort of plodding stuff in between it is at heart a film about madness and alienation about the walls that get built between people and how the idea of protecting oneself by shutting others out just doesn't work. I mean, for all the darkness of the album, it does end on a sort of ambiguously hopeful note in the way that you know, the wall comes down. And while it's implied that Pink might or might not survive, there is sort of hope for the rest of us. And it is a really unusual but really interesting character study of one man wrestling with demons, some of which are his own creation, struggling to live with others and retreating into fantasy to cope with just the realities of touring. And I do think, having kind of talked through Geldof's work, I think it's probably the best thing Geldof has ever done because I'm not a massive fan of his, his music, either with the Boomtown Rats or his solo career, but there's just something about his performance, even when he's singing and it's sort of grating against the music and it, it, it just it works. There's no other way of describing it. But it's, like I said, a character study. You have this central sort of figure whom it's very difficult to sympathize with because he's a rich and successful rock star and he's having problems and so forth. But it uses the character as a sort of prism to look at the whole aspect of rock and roll, which, like I say, was being attacked by punk and disco and so forth. And no, the music scene was changing and Pink Floyd was one of the bands that was sort of threatened with extinction during that period. And so you have all these kind of experiences of Roger Waters' own career sort of filtering through the, uh, the, the unpleasant experience of rock bands playing in stadiums is likened to fascist rallies with individual fans being picked off, which is a sort of wry joke on Waters' part because the wall came out of an event of them playing at the Olympic Stadium in Montreal and him actually spitting at one of the fans who were sort of clambering up on the stage trying to get at him and he felt that he was completely distant from them. You have the, the characters of, you know, the sort of groupies and unfaithful girlfriends running amok. I mean, some have argued that the film is misogynist because it depicts the girlfriend as being, well, in the Gerald Scarf animation, she comes across as a praying mantis. But I don't think it condones that kind of treatment of women. I think by making it so sort of shocking and psychotic, it sort of demonizes it. Um, you also have kind of things about people's minds being undone with drugs, which links back, of course, to the, the tragic fate of Sid Barrett. And, like all Roger Waters' solo stuff, there is at the heart of an idea about war is completely futile and people who wage war don't think through the emotional implications of what's left behind. 
You do wonder, wonder why it's uh, ended up being certificate 15 rather than an 18. It's some pretty heavy stuff there, isn't there? It is pretty heavy stuff. I mean, I think that the censors would argue that a lot of the violence, because it's sort of done with, with animation, it's not kind of realistically depicted in the sense that you don't have... Um, well, let's, if, to use the comparison with Alien that I used earlier on, in Alien, it's an 18 certificate because you see actual sort of flesh being ripped apart and there's actual blood and it's, it's very realistic violence which many people you know of a certain disposition might want to you know, try and copy but in Pink Floyd the War because half of it's done in animation and half of it's in a very sort of highly choreographed and conceptual I think that there would have been a less there would have been less of an incentive or an opportunity to, for people to sort of go out and emulate it. I mean, certainly, it hasn't got a 15th certificate for fear that people will go out, form rock bands, and become fascists. No, I mean, it sort of um, does some interesting things to the mind, doesn't it? It does. I mean, there are there is stuff which is, um, well, to coin a phrase from Saving Private Ryan, it is foobar. And if you don't know what foobar means, look it up, because we can't say it on air. Um, so, if, I mean, if you're of a faint and crazy disposition, you won't get through it in one sitting. And so go with someone who's either a fan of Pink Floyd or, you know, can, can take stuff. Because it is full-on, it is tough. And, no, don't get me wrong, just because it's a 15 doesn't mean it's easy to sit through. But it is worth sitting through because of just the, the overall experience of it. So just to sum up, because I know we've, we've got about 20 minutes left to rattle through new releases, it isn't a perfect film. No, I think the storytelling is inconsistent. It doesn't make narrative sense, although arguably it's not supposed to, and bits of it are quite ropey. But as a tonal piece about alienation, about distance, about madness, it still hits the mark nearly 30 years on. The music is great. Parker manages to sort of rein all these sprawling elements together in what remains one of his most adventurous films. I mean, I think he's a really great director. If you haven't seen Birdie, go and watch that. It does justice to the album, albeit indirectly, and if you have an interest in rock or prog or in kind of any of rock history at all, then it is consummate viewing and there's no way about it. Great. Well, we're just going to take a very quick break for a couple of messages and then shall we come back and have a look at the new releases? Sure. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. And it's Richard Dale and uh, Daniel Mumby with you this Saturday morning, and we move on now to have a look at the new releases. Can and, I just uh, say before you jump in with that, yeah. we should mention which uh, cult film is coming up next week. Mad Max 2. Yeah, The Road Warrior, because uh, we'll, we'll plan to do all the Mad Max films, but we'll sort of spread them out over a few weeks so you get a combination of stuff. Yeah, one to look forward to, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, shall we start with Fair Game? Yeah, okay. Um, Fair Game, new film from Doug Lehman, who is best known for directing The Bourne Identity. And when we first did this show, we had a bit of a disagreement about The Bourne series, because you think Identity is the best one. Yes, I did, yes. Is there any particular reason for that? Uh, I think it's cause, probably because it was new and it was different, and the, the two that followed that, although mm. you know, they may well have been better made, it, it felt a bit formulaic for me, and then you sort of almost knew what was going to happen because it had happened in the previous one, whereas I think Born Identity really was sort of... Uh, sort of a, quite an interesting take on uh, the, the classic sort of um, thriller uh, chase-type film. Yeah. And uh, particularly as I hadn't read the books before I saw the film. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I haven't read the books either. I mean, in the case of the latter two, they're quite sort of loose associations. But I think identity is very, very good, and I do like the idea that it inverts a lot of the spy film cliches. But in terms of its antagonist, it is quite old-fashioned. And I think that what Green, Paul Greengrass did with that um, series was that he took it over from Lehman and sort of moved it into a sort of quasi-documentary area. I mean, Supremacy and Ultimatum are very interesting films because 
they're sort of shot hyper-realistically, so it's not that this could, is happening, but it could happen. No, we, it's a complicated debate, and no, but we can, it's not such a big deal. Um, so Doug Lehman made the ball identity. He's had a very kind of up-and-down career, because he started his career with swingers, which launched the, uh, the um, jobs of Vince Vaughan and John Favreau. Then he made Go, which is sort of Pulp Fiction light. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is sort of inadvertently created Bradgelina. And most recently he made a film called Jumper, which was essentially the Tomorrow People with better special effects. So he's now back with this. It's scripted by Jez Butterworth, who is a really great playwright, um, recently made Jerusalem, most famous either that for doing the night Heron, which is a very interesting sort of play about writers living on the fens in Cambridgeshire. Based upon the memoir of Valerie Plame, and it's the story of how to cut a long story short, her status as a CIA agent was exposed in 2003, allegedly as part of a White House attempt to discredit her husband after he published articles in the New York Times, basically accusing the White House of doctoring the intelligence to justify the invasion of Iraq. The central performances are by uh, Naomi Watts and Sean Penn, and they seem pretty convincing. I mean, they've both um, been guilty in the past of sort of grandstanding and doing message movies. Did you see um, Milk, the uh, Gus Van Sant film about Harvey Milk? Uh, no, I, I don't remember that one. No, it was the one that for Sean, which Sean Penn won his Oscar for. No, basically, it was a film which I agree completely with the politics of it, but it wasn't especially cinematic. And like I say, he has been sort of guilty of doing lots of films where he gets to stand up and rant about how bad the American government is. But I think Naomi Watts is a really great actress. Um, there's been some dispute in some quarters about whether the film is historically accurate. And this area of... Iraq war conspiracy and the nature of dodgy intelligence has been previously explored, most recently in Green Zone, which was Paul Greengrass's most recent film and very underrated and surprisingly a little seen last year. But like I say, Lehman is a very good thriller director in that he knows how to put kind of images together to create tension. It looks pretty stylish. The dialogue is very good. I mean, I don't think it's groundbreaking in the way that All the President's Men was or in the way that of um, um, Paul Greengrass's earlier work like Bloody Sunday, but it's a very well-made film, and like I say, anything with Naomi Watson is worth seeing. And if you haven't seen her in Mulholland Drive, go and see it now, because you, that will be two and a half hours you will never regret. And there's a recommendation for you. Now, I'm normally a big fan of Stephen Merchant, but I don't think even he will save Hall Pass. Yeah, um... Well, like so much with Stephen Merchant, he's kind of the best thing in the film, and it, you wonder why he's taking these cameos. Um, so, Whole Pass is the new comedy by the Farrelly Brothers, um, who made Dumb and Dumber, and there's something about Mary. Are you a fan of their work? Uh, not very much, no. no me neither. Um, so, the story is that Owen Wilson and Jason Sudeikis, I think his name is pronounced, they're two middle-aged men. They're getting on their wives' nerves because they are sort of slipping into adolescence, they're back into adolescence because they're checking out other women. Their wives decide then to give them a hall pass, which means you can have a week off from marriage to kind of do what you like, no questions asked, and get this sort of stuff out of your system. Um, if you've seen the trailer for Hall Pass, um, it's not as depressingly boneheaded as some of the Farrelly's earlier work. I mean, they have sort of been off the boil recently with remakes of both Fever Pitch and The Heartbreak Kid, neither of which needed to be remade. Fever Pitch, incidentally, um, Colin first started in that. Um, and it does seem like this is an attempt to, to recapture the sort of middle America because it is a film about the value of marriage and about monogamy and that sort of thing. The problem that I have with it is, as much as I agree with that general line of it, even if it isn't a rather conservative with a small c, this message sort of sounds duplicitous when you're intersplicing it with a lot of frankly sexist scenes of girls 
um, having to kind of take their top off or show cleavage in every scene that they're on screen. I think in terms of the Farrelly's backtrack, it's not terrible. It's just not especially funny, and they can do so much better, or at least they can be a lot more honest about the exact motivations behind their films. Yeah, everything I've seen of it so far, I have to say, Daniel, I think it's a load of rubbish, and yeah. one, I, one I will not be uh, bothering to see. But, uh, it's only redeeming feature, actually. Um, it's only probably redeeming for me is that it was uh, uh, largely filmed in Atlanta, Georgia, in the US, which is where I used to live. Oh, really? That's about its only redeeming feature. So sort of miniature homecoming, I suppose. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, well, yeah, not like a I good said, film. I won't be rushing out to see it either, so I, I understand your concern. Are we going to get anything better with The Resident? Yeah, uh, well, The Resident, if you might. It depends what, how much... It's a new psychological thriller starring Hilary Swank and Jeffrey Dean Williams um, from the reborn Hammer brand, um, which might help to explain the uh, presence of Sir Christopher Lee. And... Uh, the Reborn Hammer, they haven't done very well so far because the last thing they released was the remake of Let the Right One In, the less said about which the better. Um, so the story is Hilary Swank moves into an apartment which is in this, you know, this great location, just the right price, everything is fine. But soon she comes to realize that her landlord has developed an obsession with her, so she installs loads of security systems in the apartment, she becomes paranoid and everything starts to fall apart. All I'll say about this is uh, this. Have you ever seen The Tenant? Yes, I did, yeah. Roman Polanski from, from the mid-70s. For people yeah, who I remember don't know. that well, yes. And, you know, the story is man played by Polanski in this case rents an apartment that used to belong to a woman who has just committed suicide. He becomes incredibly paranoid about the neighbours, and it's a question of, has he been there before? Is the spirit of the woman still there? And it's creepy and twisted and strange and really smart. It was a really big influence on The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick film. And this is like the tenant with sort of all the interesting ideas taken out of it, spliced together with, well, a loose setup which is close to Psycho in the sense that both Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character and Christopher Lee's character have sort of hints of Norman Bates and that they're disjointed and twitchy and sort of obsessed with women. And if you've seen clips of The Resident, you know, with Christopher Lee saying, you know, I don't get much company. And it's those sorts of lines where you go, run away now, this man is not good. So, I mean, if you're a genre fan, which I am, there's probably stuff in The Resident which will be slightly sort of charming and inventive, but it isn't anything remarkable, and it, it will probably have its, its kind of actual life on sort of uh, TV and DVD. I mean, it, it, certainly it's not up there with The Tenant or any film in Roman Polanski's Apartment trilogy. And, you know, if you haven't seen uh, either that or Repulsion or Rosemary's Baby, again, go and get them. So it's... It's not terrible. Again, it's just a bit unoriginal and a bit full of itself, frankly. So a maybe. It's yeah. It's it's sort of some halfway up. Right. So now we've got a bit of a Hollywood who's who for the next film, haven't we? Ben Affleck, Chris Cooper, Kevin Costner, Tommy Lee Jones. Who I'm a great fan of um, the Company Men. Yeah, um, which is the debut film of John Wells, who's had again has had a very odd career because I was checking out his IMDb's the other day when I was preparing for this. There might be more than one John Wells, so I might be wrong, but he started out as an actor with bit parts in the spoof version of Casino Royale, and he also turns up as one of the henchmen in For Your Eyes Only, which we were talking about the other week. Then he has that kind of acting credit on The Secret Policeman's Other Ball, the Amnesty International show, and most recently he turned up as the producer of I'm Not There, which is Todd Haynes' sort of anti-biopic of uh, Bob Dylan. So again, sort of very odd career choices. 
you have an ensemble cast of uh, middle-aged, wealthy, successful men, like you say, Ben Affleck, Chris Cooper, Tommy Lee Jones. Again, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Tommy Lee Jones, and uh, his performance in uh, The Fugitive is still one of the best in the 90s, for my money. It's a classic, uh, classic piece, and he, he does humour really well, doesn't he? He does. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of stuff like Men in Black, but in The Fugitive, when he's kind of playing it, saying, I don't care, it is very good. Um, so the story is they're all middle-aged men. They get made redundant during the recent financial crisis, and they have to sort of reevaluate their position in life as working men, as husbands, and as fathers. And there's a whole kind of thing of uh, the company that they used to work for was just, you know, it made money, and now they've got to actually make stuff because one of them goes off and becomes a carpenter. It's a very earnest film in the sense that if you've seen the trailer for The Company Men, all the four stars have Academy Award winning in front of their names. So it, it does look like a film which sort of made the long list for the Oscar nominations but didn't get enough votes to make it through to the next round. And on the one hand, it is a film about rich, successful people having problems and complaining, and there are very few films like that that I can put up with made worse in a way by the presence of Ben Affleck who is wooden and I'm not a fan of Kevin Costner at all because I think he's just a bit sort of, he takes everything far too seriously and you can make the joke about, you know, um, Ben Affleck wanting to be a carpenter so he can make something even more wooden than he is but, Ooh, well, You're not a great fan, are you? Sorry? You're not a great fan. No, I mean I, I, he's a good screenwriter because he did the screenplay with Matt Damon for Goodwill Hunting but he's just, he doesn't have a cinematic face but and I want to say this, but I like Tommy Lee Jones very much, and I like the idea of a film tackling the financial crisis in terms of its human implications. And like I say, it does seem to be sort of earnestly made in the sense of, not just earnest in the sense of wanting recognition from the awards community, but an earnest in the sense of wanting to put sort of human spin on these very complicated issues which are being handled elsewhere in documentaries. So, again, it's a sort of... Yes, but recommendation, because the performances will probably carry it, but just be prepared that bits of it are quite difficult to like. And, no, I'm, I dare say many more people are fans of Ben Affleck than I am, so don't let my prejudice cloud that. Sounding like the best of the week, though, isn't it? Well, we haven't got on to... Uh no, I think Fair Game is the moment. We haven't got on to Battle Los Angeles yet, so right. we still hope. Right, so, to introduce the final one we're going to look at, it says here, on August 11th, 2011, Earth is attacked by unknown forces. Yeah. Presumably that's Battle Los Angeles. Yes, it is. Um, Sci-fi action blockbuster directed by Jonathan Liebesman, who previously helmed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, which was this completely unnecessary uh, prequel, which explain the origins of Leatherface, and if you're familiar with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, the whole point about what made Texas Chainsaw Massacre so interesting was that there was no explanation for what was happening, and you just had to watch and see. So the story is Alan Eck Aaron Eckhart, who's still most famous for playing Harvey Dent uh, or Two-Face in the Dark Knight, he's the head of a special forces unit who get caught up in an alien invasion of Earth. He has to escape from the aliens who are hunting down and destroying the entire population of Los Angeles, and there's all sorts of things about... Um, cleansing the population and uh, taking over the earth and so forth. Um, we have seen a lot of this all before. I mean, quite apart from the fact there was a film called Skyline only about six months ago, which did the whole alien invasion thing on a very low budget with very good special effects. Obviously, this owes a lot to War of the Worlds, of which there was a recent adaptation by Steven Spielberg, which is actually very good. A lot of people were sort of down on it because they thought it was you know, just not very interesting, but I think there was a, a kind of post-9-11 undercurrent in that film. This version also has a fascination with the military, which puts it dangerously close to the work of Michael Bay. 
some people have described it as being Black Hawk Down meets Aliens, which is completely idiotic because it's everything that Black Hawk Down wasn't. You know, it's dull. It's quite poorly drawn in terms of its characters. In the wide shots, it looks like a video game. Whereas Black Hawk Down, which is a Ridley Scott film, incidentally, was very sort of, very sort of grimy and nihilistic and about the idea of you know soldiers going into a country which they think is just going to be a walkover and finding actually that it's hell on earth. So. Yeah, it's nothing you haven't seen before. In the same way of Skyline, it's probably okay as dumb, derivative, brainless fun. But otherwise, there's not much reason to recommend it. So, other than Hall Pass, I guess it's sort of mixed bag this week, isn't it? Um, yeah, but, well, Fair Game is the, out, is the, the standout film, because I do think that was well made, and I think it's an interesting story to tell, so that's the film of the week. Uh, but otherwise, I think you're going to have to um, look at what's in the top ten existing. So, Fair Game's the recommendation. If that's not your thing... Uh, the Adjustment Bureau, or if you really must, Rango. Right. There's, uh, there's some recommendations from Daniel Mumby. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully we'll hear you a little less disembodied next week, although it has been a good telephone line. Thank uh, you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Taking us to the news, week. we've got Maddie Stuckey. Bye-bye from me. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.